Time for Swordplay. Alex, video filtering company VidAngel, after four years of legal battles, has finally reached a settlement with Disney and Warner Brothers. Yeah, that's right. And as a result, VidAngel now has to pay over $9 million in damage. Ouch. But in exchange, I believe Disney movie producers have to put bars of soap in their mouths for at least five minutes. So win-win. There you go. Win-win. This is mouths. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, First Peter introduction to First Peter. We're covering all the introductory material Everything you want to know about First uh, Peter from an introductory standpoint. That's right. So we wanted to save this separate from our commentary on the first chapter because, boy, it's going to get deep into First Peter chapter 1. So we'll, we'll get there next time. How about we start off, Nick, with talking about the author. Who wrote First Peter? As with all scripture, the supreme hand behind the biblical author is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Specifically, the human author of 1 Peter is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to 1 verse 1. He's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ in 5 verse 1. And so this epistle clearly claims to be written by the Apostle Peter, who was a witness of the incarnation of Christ, especially his death. And this is especially prominent, uh, the crucifixion, in 1 verse 11, 2 verses 23 through 24, 4 verse 1, 5 verse 1. Uh, he keeps circling back to it again and again. Now, Peter was apparently helped by Silvanus, and I believe this is also the Silas uh, from Paul's letters. Right. And so Silvanus helped Peter in the actual writing process. This is according to 5 and verse 12. That is, Silvanus, Silas, he served as an amanuensis. That's the big word for um, the the secretary. He took dictation from Peter, uh, Silvanus did. And also, uh, perhaps, John Mark kind of spurred Peter along, encouraged him to write this epistle. John Mark is mentioned specifically in 5 and verse 13 as well. Mm -hmm. And then in similar fashion, maybe Peter returned the favor and perhaps aided John Mark in his composition of the gospel narrative, which bears his name. There's tradition uh, that says that's what happened. Uh, John Mark got his a lot of his information from Peter. Uh, but uh, Right, right. Who is Peter? Uh, well, in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, he has uh, three names. He is Simon, or Simeon, uh, as it is spelled in Second Peter 1 and verse 1. Also, Cephas and Peter. <clears throat> uh, so, Simeon, uh, that seems to be the Hebrew form of the Greek name Simon. Cephas, or Cephas, uh, that's the Aramaic name Jesus gives Simon um, and Peter seems to be the, the Greek name corresponding to Cephas. And both of those names, Cephas and Peter, mean rock. Peter had at least one brother. His name is Andrew. They are from the city of Bethsaida in Galilee. This is from John 1, verse 44, also 12, verse 21. 
But at the same time, it seems like they may have also kept a house in Capernaum. Uh, In Luke 4, verses 31 and 38, Jesus goes from a synagogue to Simon's house, which is presumably in Capernaum, uh, which is where he's at there. And um, probably Capernaum was the base for their business. They were fishermen. They had uh, uh, perhaps located there for their base, and then Bethsaida was uh, their hometown. Uh, Maybe they moved to Capernaum from Bethsaida in order to pursue their business by the time Jesus commenced his ministry. That may be what's going on there. Uh, Two other disciples, James and John, appear to have been business partners with Peter and Andrew. Uh, We see this in Luke 5. And verse 10. As a, side, as a side note, I did look up the distance between Bethsaida and Capernaum, and they're only about six miles away. So if you're, you're a brisk walker, you know, maybe it would take you two hours, three hours tops to walk there. So not, yeah. not too far away. Right, right. As far as the apostolic band is concerned, Peter appears to have been the de facto leader. He is named first in every list we have in the Gospels. Matthew 10, verse 2, Mark 3, verse 16, Luke 6, verse 14. And then also in the list that appears in Acts, in Acts 1, verse 13, he's the first name listed there. Hmm. That's notable. Yeah. Um, Matthew is unique in his list of apostles in 10, verse 2 through 4. He uses the word first when introducing Peter, and he says, first, Simon. Hmm. First could mean that he was involved with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He's one of the first disciples called to follow Jesus. However, Peter is not the first disciple called. His brother Andrew was. Right, And then Andrew went and got Peter and brought him, and uh, presumably John with Andrew, since John is there with Andrew in John 1, verses 35 through 40. On the other hand, it could be a reference to Peter's priority among the Twelve as their leader and as their primary spokesman. He appears to have been the spokesman for the group on several occasions. If you just take Matthew's Gospel, you'll notice 15, verse 15, 16, verse verses 13 through 16, 17, verse 4, 18, verse 21, 19, verse 27. It's Peter, 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 who's always talking. He's again, seems to be the primary spokesman. Um, In fact, I've written a paper that kind of promotes that view of Peter's primacy among the apostles. And I know, especially in our tradition, we don't like to typically think about that because um, our, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church has kind of taken that to a degree that I don't know that we're comfortable with, but nevertheless, it's there, and you have to deal with Peter's primacy among uh, the Twelve. Yeah. Uh, let me just skip to the end of Peter. There's a lot that can be said. I've written, I think it's like a 20-page research paper. Um, I, I haven't posted it anywhere, so I can't, I can't uh, direct you anywhere but uh, for that, but uh, maybe someday I'll I'll leak it out. But what about Peter? Swordplay dot com. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the future home of swordplay. Um, Peter's martyrdom is mentioned at the end of John's Gospel twenty one John twenty one verses eighteen and nineteen. It's a veiled statement at best. Uh, Jesus talking about you know when you're old you'll be led. Someone else is going to lead you and. The early church historian Eusebius quotes Dionysius, a bishop of Corinth, 
uh, his epistle to the Romans, uh, Dionysius' epistle to the Romans. And uh, according to the record that Eusebius kept, it says both Paul and Peter were martyred, quote, in Italy at the same time. And then also 1 Clement 5 and verse 4 uh, says that when Peter had at length suffered martyrdom, he departed to the place of glory due to him. And there's also early tradition that says that Peter, uh, he was crucified upside down because he didn't deem himself worthy of being crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So uh, he was a martyr. He, he did suffer martyrdom along with every other apostle except for John who seems to have succumbed to old age. But um, that's a bit about Peter that I found. Alex, what yeah. say you? You know, you're mentioning Peter and Paul dying in, in Rome. I actually got to go to uh, both of the places where it is believed that they uh, were died and were buried. And so you have hmm. Paul buried actually outside of the old Roman walls at a basilica called uh, St. Paul in Chains Basilica. And then you have, uh, of course, Peter buried under uh, St. Peter's Cathedral, St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, that that big Egyptian obelisk, you know, right out in front of St. Peter's Basilica, mm. uh, that's the same obelisk that Nero brought on display in his traveling circus games. And so, uh, yeah, Peter, he was uh, supposedly crucified upside down at the circus in front of this Egyptian pagan obelisk. And so the obelisk now at St. Peter's, uh, it sits lower than St. Peter's Basilica. And on top of the obelisk is a cross. So it's a very powerful image of, you know, where's Nero, right? Where's, where are the Egyptian gods? Uh, they're not here anymore, but Peter is, and so is the church. <laughs> and uh-huh. we stand, uh, as conquerors, as victors in the long run. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the source of many conspiracy theories. Why is this obelisk in the, in the middle of, of St. Peter's Basilica? But uh, it's because it's our, it's our victory trophy. We took their stuff because we won. And we didn't win by the sword because we won. And we didn't win by the sword. We won a lot to do with First Peter. We'll talk about the theme of suffering in First Peter in a moment. So something uh, about Peter, you mentioned him having priority about primacy among the apostles. I've noticed that uh, just in John's gospel, and Sunday at our church here at the Lake Phelan Congregation, we have been going through John's gospel for a while now, a year, over a year. And I've been compiling a list just from John concerning Peter's primacy among the apostles. And so here's, here's what I have so far. One, he's the only apostle to receive a name change, right? You get that in John 1.42. Two, uh, he speaks on behalf of of the 12. I think you mentioned that in Matthew. Uh, that happens in John 6, verse 66 to 71. Three, he's the first to have his feet washed and to be declared clean. It's John 13, verses 5 through 12. Fourth, he's the first to enter the tomb of Jesus. It's John 20, verses 4 through 8. He didn't run faster than, uh, <laughs> than the other disciple, but he was the first to go in. Fifth, 
he initiates and leads the fishing expedition in John 21, verse 3. This is after Jesus has been crucified. Uh, 6, he's the first to swim to Jesus after the miraculous catch, John 21, verses 7 through 8. 7, he is in charge of bringing all the fish that were caught to Jesus, John 21, verses 10 through 11. 8, he is especially commissioned to shepherd Jesus' sheep, John 21, verses 15 through 19. In fact, I've concluded that chapter 21 of the Gospel of John as a whole, this is the epilogue, right? It seems to have its entire purpose in pointing out Peter's primacy. And when you combine that with John's entire Gospel, uh, one must ask, did John write it that way on purpose? And I think, yes, he did. Uh, in 1 Peter, right, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we'll get there eventually, Peter calls himself an elder, and he describes being an elder, encouraging other elders, in terms of shepherding and overseeing. And that's what the job of an elder is. The elder, the shepherd pastor, the overseer bishop, these are all actually job descriptions of an appointed group of men of which Peter considers himself uh, in that position. Of course, you have to ask yourself, was his position unique? Was it special? And uh, the Gospels point that direction. And I know that, as you mentioned, Nick, that rubs us the wrong way. Hmm. Uh, it seems a little too Catholic. But there are some rich things that I think we perhaps miss out on in Scripture if we're always reading with an anti-Catholic sentiment. So we've got to fight against that. That's our own presuppositions. You know, that's that's part of the challenge of biblical study is when things rub us the wrong way. We got to ask, is that our fault? <laughs> or what's going on? So you've, you've co we've covered Matthew, we covered John, just by way of kind of rounding it out, I guess, Mark yeah. and Luke. Both of those Gospels, in Mark and Luke, Peter is the first apostle mentioned and the last apostle mentioned hmm. and i mean this it's just it's it's overwhelming once you just really start digging into all the data um mark doesn't have the uh like matthew doesn't uh matthew has the uh i'll build my church mark doesn't have that but what he has is the reinstatement go tell peter and the others um and then uh, that coincides with what you pointed out with John as well. Uh, so Acts, he's he's constantly the the leader, the spokesman. He's all over the place in the first uh, twelve chapters, even into chapter fifteen. He's he's mentioned there. So yeah, and and in the early church writings, as I was coming across stuff about Peter, um, he is constantly mentioned alongside with Paul. Those two, Peter and Paul mentioned as the most excellent pillars in the church, uh, the most glorious examples of uh, long-suffering and endurance. And so, yeah, I mean, very, very important. Well, Nick, why don't you talk to us for a second about when you think First Peter was written? What about the date? 
Yeah, so uh, Lenski in his commentary puts the writing of this epistle in the final year of Peter's life, not long before he meets a martyr's death under Nero in the year 64 AD. And that's pretty well uniformly attested among the scholars and the commentators, although some push Peter's martyrdom uh, a little later into the 60s. Um, And so... Uh, maybe he dies in 67, and this first Peter is written in 64. That seems to be kind of the target date for a lot of these guys is, is 64 A.D. That's what I found. What did you find? Well, so First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter refers to their fiery trials of the dispersed believers, the exiles. Now, I think that's a veiled reference to Nero burning down Rome and then blaming it on the Christians. Uh, if that's true, if that's a veiled reference, and this letter is in response to that, then the letter could have been written any time after July of AD 64, because that's when Rome was burned down. By the way, just to get an idea of the scope of how serious that was, how big of an event that was, as a result of the fires, half of Rome's population became homeless. Can you imagine that? Half of your entire city becoming homeless overnight? I mean, that's crazy. I think it said, um, I read somewhere where it said about 70% of the area was burned. I mean, that's a massive, massive fire. (laughs) So that would have no doubt caused a mass exodus, right? Sure, there were some who probably could have stayed. And um, I think uh, one historian noted that... um, Nero did offer up uh, some of his property for people to uh, temporarily be housed in, but a drop in the bucket, right? Uh, That's not going to do it. It would have been a mass exodus from Rome after that kind of devastation. And then you combine that with the fact that, okay, he blames this on Christians. So Christians are being arrested. They're being killed, persecuted, persecuted. Perhaps these elect exiles in Asia Minor that Peter writes to, perhaps they are the fallout from that fire. And so we'll talk more about the audience in the next question. But I did notice that Peter himself does not, in the letter of 1 Peter, does not sound like his own life is in danger or that his own life is near the end. So I don't think uh, that that was the year Peter died. I don't think Peter died in the year he wrote first Peter. So I I wouldn't have put it in AD 64 like uh, some commentators do. I probably would be in that other camp that would say, I think he probably died a few years later, AD 66, AD 67, because you get the second Peter and second Peter does have Peter talking about how he's nearing the end. He is going to put off this earthly dwelling at second Peter 114. So the question is just how much later was Second Peter written after First Peter? A year, two years, three years? We don't know. But I do think that uh, there was some time there. So, Nick, what do you think about Peter's audience? Who was First Peter written to? The epistle, again, back to the text, 1 verse 1, is addressed to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And elect exiles, that is uh, 
Peter's two-word sermon for this epistle. It is Peter's way of describing the church in Asia Minor. Uh, The church in Asia Minor perhaps began some 30 years before Peter wrote this epistle when representatives of three of the place, the five places named here in 1 verse 1, specifically Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, they were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard Peter's sermon and believed and obeyed the gospel. Uh, Acts 2 verse 9 tells us those three uh, territories were represented on the day of Pentecost. And then they went back home and they formed the nucleus of the church and and served as a hub for evangelistic efforts to Galatia and Bithynia. And uh, while, while this takes place, the Apostle Paul is on his first and second missionary journeys, planting and establishing churches in these areas, either directly, as in the case of Galatia, according to Acts 14 and Acts 16, verse 6, or indirectly, as is the case in with Bithynia, Acts 19 and verse 10 tells us. So um, the actual composition of the churches in the area, it is debated. Uh, were these predominantly Jewish audiences? Were they predominantly Gentile congregations? Were they a mixture of both Jew and Gentile? And while the overwhelming use of Old Testament texts might hint at a largely Jewish congregation, much of the language also indicates that there were many Gentiles. Uh, that is to say, they had a past, and they, the, the past Gentile immorality is on display in verses like 4, verse 3. Uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And he lists several uh, uh, categories, several sins there. Um, their previous condition of being not a people, that is outside the covenant, that would seem to also indicate that there was a heavy Gentile membership. And so therefore it seems reasonable that these were mixed congregations of the Lord's people located all around Asia Minor. Uh, Jews and Gentiles united in one body, which, man, it seems like I've read that somewhere in, like, <laughs> Ephesians or something. That's right. Uh, Ephesians and that, 2, something like that. And that, that one body reconciled to God through Christ. Um, That's right. One of the notable features of the church in Asia Minor, and this is true for the church throughout history, is that they are beloved. 2 verse 11, 4 verse 12, uh, Peter uses that term. And it, and it could be that this is Peter, and he loves his brothers and sisters. But also, we can't miss God loves them. And, uh, and, and as a result of God's love for them, uh, they are to love one another. And look, love is to be a distinct characteristic of the church. Love the brotherhood, he says in 2 verse 17. And we are to love one another earnestly and to love one another with a sincere love. Um, uh, this is uh, from a pure heart, 1 verse 22 and also 4 verse 8. So that theme of love, I mean, it, it runs all throughout this epistle as yeah. well. So uh, that's a bit of what I found. What do you think about the recipients of this epistle, Alex? Yeah, you were mentioning the theme of love running through the epistle. I mean, Jesus says in John 13, right, this is how the world will know uh, that I've been sent that you love one another. You'll, they'll know you're my disciples by that attribute. So that's a good point. I think that uh, this entire area 
the elect exiles of these regions that are basically Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, it would have been mixed congregations full of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, now one new man in Christ. I think that is the case. Many of these cities, uh, they did have a strong Jewish presence, right? They had synagogues. They had um, large Jewish populations. Uh, We do see, though, from the book of Acts that Yeah, as Paul went through and established congregations, as believers spread and started congregations, um, there there was a strong Jewish opposition, right? There was a strong Jewish presence, which often became a strong Jewish opposition that would run Paul out of town, from town to town, right? You see him chasing him from town to town in the book of Acts, persecuting all of those who believe. And so you have two things going on there. Yeah, a lot of Jews in that area. A lot of opposition from the unbelieving ones as well. So imagine being in the first generation of Christians in Asia Minor. You first endure the steady onslaught of Jewish opposition as the Jews use their influence to stir the Roman authorities against you. And that's in the book of Acts. We see that happening. But you hang in there, right? The the apostles, the prophets, they encourage them. You hang in there. And then... You hear about fellow believers down in Judea that are going to need help financially because of a bad famine that's coming. So you sacrifice, you in your poverty still give to support the brethren. But then also false teachers are creeping into certain congregations and taking over congregations. Now you have to deal with that. And then a flood of immigrants come down from Rome because of the great fire. And you need to help the believers among them with housing, with food, with finding them work. Man, these guys, these Christians in Asia Minor, they had great faith. They had to. They had to. There's no way they could have made it without great faith. It's no wonder that it is to those churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. A quick note about the presence of Old Testament quotations. You know, even when you see Old Testament quoted quite a bit in a certain letter, maybe that means a higher Jewish audience, maybe not. I don't find it particularly helpful with pinpointing the audience because, uh, I mean, what are we to do? Are we to assume that Gentile converts wouldn't bother to learn the scriptures? Uh, Of course not. I mean, especially since it was available in Greek. And so there were, uh, again synagogues in these places the the teaching was there i think these uh gentile converts i think they became quite fluent in old testament theology especially when they got guys like uh paul and peter and barnabas and john mark and luke sylvanus and timothy and titus making their way through teaching them building them up i think they're all going to be equipped in the word uh as new christians so first generation Christians, not an easy not an easy place to be, not an easy group to be a part of. So great faith. Okay. Nick, what do we know about first century Asia Minor? So this is where the letter is going. Tell us about that. Yeah, so like we said, the, the epistle is addressed to uh, the elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these Roman provinces covered all but the southernmost part of Asia Minor. Uh, This would be what is modern-day Turkey. 
According to John Elliott in his article on the first epistle of Peter, uh, his article in the Anchor Bible Dictionary, he estimates, uh, or he says that there are estimates that suggest that the total population of this territory was approximately 8.5 million with 1 million Jews and 80,000 Christians by the end of the first century. I don't know who's counting that, but uh, those are the estimates. <laughs> and uh, these these provinces, they embraced a large area of land as well as a large population. And that all of these provinces are mentioned is a testament to the enormous missionary activities of the early church. These people got out, and they were spreading the word wherever they were. Uh, it reminds right. me of Acts 8, um, where it says that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And that wasn't the super, you know, the, the super elites or, you know, those who were expertly trained and had a, had a, a background in biblical studies. It's not even the apostles. They stay in Jerusalem. It's just the church. It's just Christians. And, and I think that's a, uh, a powerful testament to their evangelistic efforts, and I think it ought to inspire us. To in similar way, I mean, we're the we claim to be the restoration of the first century church. Well, we need to restore these evangelistic missionary activities as well. Uh, so uh, that's a bit of what I found about first century Asia Minor. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Peter, he is writing a circular letter. It's going to go to all of these regions, right? So the fact that he could write that kind of a letter. That also tells us about the authority that Peter had, right? He is being received by all of these churches in this widespread area. I think that's impressive. That tells us something about Peter's authority. This letter was well known in the early church. It was quoted from in the early church. It was even given commentary on by some of the earliest church writers. Paul likely had a few circular letters himself, right? Ephesians, probably Colossians as well. Now, not all of the New Testament letters, I think, were originally circular, but eventually all of them become copied and circulated widely. First Peter, however, First Peter is the only New Testament letter that specifically introduces itself as a circular letter intended to cover all of these regions. Uh, the next closest thing you would get to that would be James's introduction, where he says to the twelve tribes in dispersion, but that's a unique thing about First Peter. He He's the only letter that says, nope, this is Peter, and I'm writing to all of these Christians in all of these areas, and that's the way it would have been spread. So very, uh, very important commentary on not only the spread of Christianity, but also the reception of Peter within that realm. So, Nick, where do you think Peter was at when he penned First Peter? From whence came First Peter? <laughs> so, according to 5 and verse 13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon, um, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son. So, uh, this epistle originated in Babylon, but how are we to understand Babylon? What, what does Peter mean when he writes at, uh, at Babylon? And there are uh, three possible options for this location. Uh, there is uh, Babylon and Mesopotamia uh, that we know from 
the uh, uh, Old Testament. And uh, the, the problem with that is, um, I forget who I was reading, but uh, no one lived there at the time. So I'm <laughs> um, not, not certain that's a real viable option. Second, there was a, a military, Roman military settlement at Cairo, Egypt, that was named Babylon. So down, down in Egypt, that's where, that's according to this theory, that's where Peter was at this military installation. I, the third option is Rome, and this is where I land. Rome is poetically pictured, figuratively pictured as Babylon, and this is the case in several Jewish works for Ezra's to Baruch. Uh, for example, as well as uh, Revelation. This is my read of Revelation. Uh, Babylon there is Rome. That's the great city that's set on, what, seven hills and all that, and that's uh, a historical description of uh, uh, Rome. Uh, 17 verse 5, 18 verse 2 talks about Babylon, and again, my read of Revelation, that is Rome. Uh, In addition, there's evidence that is reasonably good that Peter... Uh, eventually did make it to Rome. He lived there and he died there. Uh, we've already talked about the martyrdom. Uh, it's interesting when you read like 1 Corinthians because uh, four times Paul mentions Peter, calls him Cephas. Uh, he, four times he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And the first two times that Peter is mentioned, 1 verse 12, 3 verse 22, uh, it actually centers on the division problems that are uh, taking place in Corinth. There's actually a rival faction that uh, is uh, comprised of those who follow Cephas. And uh, one writer assumes that uh, it's possible that Peter went to Corinth at some point in his life and that there was this Peter faction that was composed of and comprised of those who had been converted by him. And so I, I follow I follow Cephas, I follow Peter, right? Um, and then the next reference is in 9 verse 5, and this is Paul appealing to his apostolic rights, including his right to a Christian wife, just like Peter. And uh, so the argument is made that, that Peter and his wife stayed in Corinth for a short time, perhaps en route to another destination like uh, Rome, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so the Corinthians, they not only knew Peter, but they also knew his wife. And so Paul can make mention of Peter and his wife. The fourth mention, by the way, is in chapter 15, and that's part of uh, what seems to be an early Christian creed. And, and, and that also demonstrates, I think, part of the, what we talked about earlier, about the, the priority, the preeminence of Peter um, among the apostles, because it talks about how Jesus, he appeared to Cephas, and that's specifically mentioned. That's a post-resurrection appearance. Um, also, the destination, the order of the destination in 1 verse 1, looking at a map, uh, that indicates uh, a circulation route that would originate in the west, uh, and that, and of course, Rome was west of Asia Minor. And so the letter bearer would have arrived and departed uh, from the uh, north shores of Pontus, Bithynia, and then made the circular route with the, the epistle there uh, that was written f- by Peter from Rome, which he, again, figuratively, figuratively calls Babylon. 
So that's my take on it. Alex, uh, what do you think? Where did where was Peter when he wrote First Peter? Okay, so I understand that Rome is the popular answer. It was also the popular answer for early church writers, especially Eusebius, who quotes Papias saying that Peter meant Rome when he said Babylon. So I get it. what do they know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I get it. I get it. I get it. All right. But (laughs) there's another possibility that I'll just say it intrigues me. Okay. When Peter says Babylon here, there's a view that says he means Jerusalem. So hear me out on this one. This answer, it could be much, much longer. I'll try to keep it shorter. I'll share just a few of the most persuasive points to me. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 8 says that the great city is where the Lord was crucified and it is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Jesus, he was crucified in Jerusalem. That's, that's well known, right, in the Gospels. And just because the hands of the Roman soldiers put him up there on the cross, that doesn't magically turn Jerusalem into Rome. All right, so the great city in Revelation eleven eight is Jerusalem. Now, in Revelation 17 and 18, there's the harlot. And the harlot is called the great city. Now, it, it, maybe it's a different great city than chapter 11. Maybe, maybe so. But I, I think it's the same great city. Now, on that, on that harlot's forehead are some, some writings, some titles. And the title, Mother of Harlots, is written on her forehead, Revelation 17, 5. Now, there's, there's Old Testament references for that. See, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3, Jerusalem was accused of having a harlot's forehead. And so there are these very strong parallels, point for point, between Old Testament apostate Israel and this harlot in the book of Revelation. Now, the biggest hang-up for most people when they look at Revelation and they see Babylon and they think, well, that can't be Jerusalem because this great city is described, this harlot is described as uh, making kings and merchants and sailors rich. They got rich off of her. So here's, here's the thing, though. It says that those are the kings of the earth, merchants of the earth, sailors of the sea, the Greek word for earth there is gay, and it can also mean land. doesn't have to mean the entire earth. It can mean land, as in a specific piece of land, like the land of Israel or the land of Judah, which is the way it's used often in the Old Testament. So the kings of the land of Judah, those are the Herods. Those are the Herods. And did the Herods want to see Jerusalem destroyed? Or would they be sad? If uh, Judea got invaded and taken down by Rome, yeah, of course they would. They would weep and wail because the Herods got rich being the middlemen between Rome and the Jews. And then if you have the merchants of the land, right? Well, the merchants of the land of Judea, they would be out of business if Judea was destroyed, especially the central economic driver, right? What, what was the central economic driver? It was the temple. If that's destroyed as well, the merchants are going to be in tears, And then those who live off the sea, they'd be devastated too because you had a large economy of fishermen up at Galilee, right? That's where a lot of the apostles were from. That was their business. And so if you look at the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War, man, the slaughter that took place in Galilee, it is incredible. I mean, 
so many, so many hundred, like thousands and thousands killed. Their bodies left in the Sea of Galilee. It was bad. It was bad news. So the sea business up in Galilee, devastated by the Jewish-Roman war. So I'm just saying that because that's that's revelation from a preterist approach, right? This is this is point and counterpoint for why Babylon could be Jerusalem. Now, as far as we have it in the biblical account, let's think about where Peter would have been, right? The last place we see Peter in the Bible is in Jerusalem. That's in Acts chapter 15. He's in Jerusalem. Now, he he went places, right? We see him going on different missionary journeys, uh, but he comes back to Jerusalem from time to time, right? So that's the last place we see him, Acts 15. Now, could he have left and gone to Rome and then come back to Jerusalem again? Sure, sure. Did Peter eventually go to Rome and die there? I think so. I think that's the testimony of the early church. I think that's probably true. However, when did that death take place, right? When did he go back to Rome and then die there? Did it happen uh, before this letter was written or sometime after this letter was written? And that's the presupposition that changes how one reads the text, meaning that he could be in Jerusalem when he pins this letter. He could be in Rome when he pins this letter. If he's in Jerusalem when he pins this letter, maybe that's what he's calling Babylon, just like Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11.8. So another thing, if Peter's letter is in response to the persecution breaking out in Rome, right, the mass exodus because of the fire and the homelessness, if that's the occasion, which I think it is, it leaves no trace of Peter's own concern for persecution or imminent departure if he has decided to stay back in Rome, right? You guys are all homeless and you're leaving Rome. I'm staying back in Rome, and that's what I mean by Babylon. He doesn't have concern or leave traces of his own concern for himself in First Peter if Babylon meant Rome, and that's where he was writing. Now, I would expect something like that in Second Peter, because Second Peter does have him declaring that his departure of his earthly dwelling is imminent it's soon he expects it so maybe he wrote second peter from rome but i don't think he wrote first peter from rome i think babylon is uh spiritual adulterous jerusalem in the first century leading up to i mean it's very very close to when jerusalem is destroyed why is jerusalem destroyed it's god's judgment on jerusalem so jerusalem's in a bad state spiritually in the 60s, right? Even before that, Jesus uh, points out many things he, he, about why they're under judgment. So that's that's an intriguing perspective. I I like that. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm not saying that the other answer is impossible because uh, it was a very popular answer today and in the early church. So you know, I don't want to dismiss that. So that's that's just another perspective. Just throwing it out there, Nick. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> so, purpose and occasion. Nick, why was First Peter written? So these these Christians in Asia Minor they are an oppressed minority in a thoroughly pagan society. Uh, as Peter puts it, they are suffering some fiery trial. Uh, Four verse twelve. Their exclusive allegiance to Christ as Lord, their status as strangers and sojourners, as they're described in 2 verse 11, that puts a significant strain on these uh, Christians' relations with their surrounding society. And this sets the stage for the hostility 
and the suffering that they encountered from the Gentiles, both uh, local persecution and universal suffering by your brotherhood throughout the world, as uh, Peter styles it in 5, 19, uh, 5 verse 9, that appears to be the result of uh, state-sanctioned pressure all the way to uh, the emperor in Rome, which was Nero at the time of the composition. So these exiles, they're living under empire, and they were not to fight back, fit in, or flee. They honored everyone, the emperor included, 2 verse 17 says. And they did all this while living out a Christian ethic. And if, hmm. if one, of the, one of the things that is good in your own Bible study, diligent listener, is when you're going through a book, try to identify the purpose statement. Uh, oftentimes, you'll read, it'll be very plain, where it says, I am writing for thus and such reason. They don't always phrase it that way. Sometimes you have to go digging for it. But um, if there's a purpose statement that is to be found in First Peter, I would identify it as uh, 2 verses 11 and 12, with a preface to the purpose statement that comes back in 1 and verse 13. And so 113, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then 2.11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For me, that's 2, 11, and 12. That's the purpose statement. This is why Peter's writing. But you also have that preface that is, you've got to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's a bit about what I see as to why First Peter was written, why Peter put pen to parchment. What do you say, Alex? So just to sort of, I guess, echo some of the things I've already said, if this is in the 60s, if this is under Nero's reign, boy, was this a tough time for the church. You had continued opposition from unbelieving Jews in every city with a synagogue. You had crackdowns from the Roman government who were stirred up by the unbelieving Jews. Then half of Rome becomes homeless because Nero starts a fire and blames it on Christians. Now Christians are being used as candlesticks in Nero's backyard. You had famine. You had apostles being killed. Uh, then, to top it off, you got the Jewish-Roman war breaking out. And so the Christians of Jerusalem, they eventually have to flee to the mountains of Pella before its destruction. Peter's audience, uh, they've already been through a lot. And guess what? It's going to get worse before it gets better. So these are, these are tough, trying times for Peter's audience. And uh, I, I like the purpose statement um, honing in on verse 13 of chapter 1. And uh, I'd, I'd like to especially to hone in on the first part where Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And that's followed by three exhortations to stay sober. So right there in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind, literally in the Greek. So therefore, stay sober. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 4, verse 7, so stay sober. Uh, chapter 5, verse 8, so stay sober. <laughs> hmm. This 
threefold exhortation, diligent keeping of the mind, focused, clear, on point, sober. The battlefield is for the hearts and minds of men. And so what do you, what you think, what you think will determine your actions and what you think, your mindset, it will allow you to endure suffering in a godly way, in a sanctifying way. And I think that's, that's the purpose statement. Prepare your minds for action. Stay sober. So, Nick, let's talk about the uh, emphasis or emphases in the theme that can be seen in First Peter. What is First Peter about? My read, I see three main emphases that are actually wrapped around a singular theme. So the first emphasis is uh, concerning salvation. And this begins in 1 verse 3 and runs to 2 verse 12. The next main emphasis is on submission from 2 verse 13 to 3 verse 7. And then the third main emphasis is on suffering, beginning in 3 verse 8 and runs to 5 verse 11. Uh, and so these, these seem to be the three main emphases that Peter has in mind, salvation, submission, suffering. But all these things are wrapped around and revolve around and center on God's grace. Um, and in fact, uh, grace is mentioned all throughout First uh, Peter. 1 verse 13 in, in the purpose statement or the preface to the purpose, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. 3 verse 7, wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life with husbands. Uh, 4 verse 10, you are to be a good steward of God's varied grace. And he talks a bit about spiritual gifts. 5 verse 5, quoting from Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is the God of all grace. In 5 verse 10, uh, Peter is declaring the true grace of God in 5 verse 12. So grace, grace, is, it's, it's all throughout this epistle, and I think that's what ties this all together. And again, it revolves around salvation. You have been saved, past tense. You are saved, present tense. You will be saved in the future. And then in light of your salvation, submit to governing authorities, submit to employers, spouses, submit to one another. Well, submit to everyone, all right? Um, and then uh, you've been saved, you are submissive, but you also need to be prepared to suffer for being a Christian. Uh, yes, you're saved, and although you submit, you will suffer. You don't belong here. You are strangers. You are sojourners. You are elect exiles. But since you are here, live according to the kingdom ethic. And so kind of my thematic summary statement is stand firm and hopefully in God's grace as sojourners and strangers who are living under empire. Uh, so that's what I see, just kind of a broad overview of the book and what it's about. What, what do you see about the main emphases and theme here, Alex? So I'll put it in two words. I think Peter's message is going to be sacred suffering, right? So I'm really seeing everything through that lens of suffering. Our salvation, it came through the sacred suffering of Jesus. Our submission to the authorities and to one another is going to require sacred suffering, especially when you're having to submit to someone who doesn't deserve it, right? When you're undergoing uh, things that are wrong. 
the suffering that we do must not be for us doing wrong, but for doing what is right. When I say sacred suffering, I mean the use of one's suffering to bring about sanctification. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, sanctification is the process of becoming holy. It's that being transformed into the image of Christ. Salvation, then, is an umbrella term. It covers both a past event, namely our regeneration and justification at baptism, but salvation also covers our sanctification. And without sanctification, which is a lifelong process, by the way, we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14. So sacred suffering then involves two parties, in my view. First, there's God who will use suffering, though not always be the cause of such suffering, he will use it to bring about good. Second, we have ourselves. We must put on the mindset, the perspective of viewing our own suffering as a way to become more holy and thus welcoming it when the time comes. And so I'll be spinning off of that probably as I give my view, First Peter, and bouncing off of yours as well. So, uh, Nick, there are two letters of Peter, First Peter and Second Peter. Do they have anything to do with each other? What's the relationship between First and Second Peter? Yeah, usually when we talk uh, intertextuality, which is the big term for what we're doing here, comparing these two documents, when we talk about intertextuality concerning a Petrine epistle, it is Second Peter with Jude, right? Um, however, assuming Peter wrote both epistles, which bear his name, and I believe we both make that assumption, uh, some discussion ought to take place regarding their relationship. And that we have them in the right order seems evident, since Peter himself calls Second Peter the second letter uh, in chapter 3. The introductions are virtually identical. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. First and Second Peter one verse two. There's also parallels between First Peter one verses ten through twelve and Second Peter one verses nineteen through twenty one. Both epistles mention prophets and the prophetic word. Peter speaks generally of revelation by the Spirit of Christ, whereby prophets predicted things. Uh, he does that in First Peter, and then. He details what that means in Second Peter. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he says in uh, 1 verse 21 of Second Peter. First Peter, saturated with Scripture, containing approximately 30 allusions to the Old Testament, several lengthy quotations from the First Testament. And this is contrasted with Second Peter, which has only a handful of allusions, only one direct quotation, in 2 verse 22. There are strong parallels between 1 Peter 4 verse 7, also verses 17 through 19, and 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 10. Both epistles assume the nearness and the certainty of divine judgment, and that is supposed to be a motivation for holy living, uh, that the holiness of your living tied to 1 Peter 4, verses 15 and 16, and then 2 Peter 3 and verse 14. Again, you see the parallels there. And then, of course, 1 Peter 3, verse 20, uh, parallels with 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. Both epistles 
Peter has some kind of strong affinity for Noah because he mentions Noah in both. Uh, he talks about him as a uh, herald in First Peter, uh, one interpretation of a very difficult text that we'll talk about at length, 3 verse 19 of First Peter. It is Christ preaching through Noah, again, one interpretation. That's the heralding. Uh, set, the eight souls are saved. There are seven plus Noah uh, in Second Peter 2 and verse 5. God's patience is similarly mentioned in both epistles, First Peter 3 and verse 20. And you compare that with two, uh, excuse me, Second Peter 3 and verse 9. Uh, patience, by the way, the same word in both of those verses. So you have a lot of touch points here. I know people want to talk about how you know they question the authorship of Second Peter. Some even question the authorship of First Peter, but uh, some question Second Peter because you know First, Second Peter they're so different, and they are. And yet you do have a lot of touch points. You do have a lot of parallels here, and so I, we can't just dismiss Second Peter as some kind of New Testament pseudepigrapha. Uh, rather. I mean, Paul, he demonstrates you can talk to uh, the same group in different ways, uh, in different epistles. Paul has a different way of addressing things in one epistle than he does in another. Romans is this extended discourse about justification by faith, and it is this doctrinal masterpiece. Whereas like like a Philemon or even Philippians, has a much friendlier tone to it. Uh, And so just because authors will use different styles or different words, we cannot dismiss out of hand just based on that. Oh, hey, Peter didn't write 2 Peter. No, I'm fairly confident he wrote both 1 and 2 Peter, and these parallelisms are strong support for that position. Uh, So... That's a bit of what I see. Alex, give us a few more uh, connections you see between First uh, Peter and Second Peter. Yeah, there are uh, quite a few common theological uh, touch points. Like both have strong allusions to our resurrection body, right? Uh, it's our imperishable, undefiled, immortal inheritance in First Peter one four. And it's our partaking of the divine nature in Second Peter one four. First Peter one four, second Peter one four. Hmm. Both emphasize Peter's eyewitness testimony of Christ, of Christ's sufferings, first Peter five one, and of Christ's transfiguration, second Peter one verses sixteen through eighteen. Uh, both command a focus on holiness. It's first Peter one verses 15 through 16 and second peter 3 verse 11 uh, in first peter 1 19 it is christ who was spotless and blameless but in second peter 3 14 it is the christian who should be found spotless and blameless in other words in the end that's our sanctification process that's where we'll get to so you mentioned a lot i added a few more first and second peter uh, even if you want to argue they weren't both written by Peter, they had their mind in the same place. And so makes sense to me that it's both Peter, just like it says in both letters, they're both Peter. Yep. So we have wrapped up the introduction to First Peter. A lot of information here, covered a lot of things. Um, 
uh, compared to our second period of podcast, which we just kind of glossed over the introduction material, <laughs> this is uh, quite a bit different. This is this is an entire introduction episode on its own. We thought it deserved its own episode just because there was so much information we were finding. Uh, we hope Plus, you enjoyed it. You yeah, know, we, we we also didn't want to produce a three-hour episode on yeah. introduction and First Peter chapter one. <laughs> yeah, imagine in, we're at, what, 50-something minutes into the podcast. Oh, oh an hour, 59 minutes, an hour in a yeah, there's there's only so much you can take in at one time. So <laughs> let this just be the introduction episode, and we'll dive into chapter one next time. Because, uh, like I said at the beginning, it is rich, it is deep, and there are some important things and a little bit of swordplay that's going to need to happen. So right. we will we will do that next time. But we're at the end of an episode, therefore it means now is the time for our. Featured Creature. Featured Creature. And this week's Featured Creature is a person, thing, deity, guy, idea. <laughs> There's something called Reshef. Nick, why don't you tell us about Reshef? So if you look up the term in your uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, there's at least a threefold usage of the term. Uh, one you'll find, it is a proper name. First Chronicles 7 and verse 25, there is an Ephraimite who is a son of Repha and the father of Telah, and his name is Reshef. Now there are those who say, well, it's like a, what, a... Uh, uh, a misvocalization, you need to revocalize, or it's a misspelling, or something like that. But you'll find that in your Hebrew Bible, Reshef, a proper name for a dude. But overwhelmingly, the usage has to do with uh, different things, things other than uh, a name. Uh, there are at least seven other uses that relate to, in the first place, epidemic. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. Plague there is your Hebrew term for reshef. And then this uh, somewhat parallels Habakkuk 3, verse 5, which says, before before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Both of those usages, translations of, of the term there, reshef or plague. So, what do we see? Well, God promised judgment in the form of famine, pestilence, and plague for their unfaithfulness. That's the Deuteronomy 32 passage. Disasters, as they are described in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 32. And then Habakkuk 3.5 is the realization of that promise, as unfaithful Judah is visited with pestilence and plague and famine, also mentioned. You have the wasted with hunger in Deuteronomy 32. Well, that answers and corresponds to Habakkuk 3 and verse 17. The field yields no food. There's your famine. Uh, so so epidemic, plague. Seems kind of fitting with all this COVID-19 stuff going on. But um, <laughs> then there's also, in the second place, another usage, which has to do with, I'm just going to call it fire. Um, Job 5 verse 7, a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Sparks there, the sparks, that's Reshef. Psalm 76, verse 3, there he broke the flashing arrows. That's Reshef, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. 
Psalm 78, verse 48, he gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. Thunderbolts there, Reshef. And then twice, Reshef shows up in Song of Songs 8, verse 6, uh, specifically the end of that verse. It's flashes or flashes of fire. Flashes, flashes. That's Both of those are Reshef, the very flame of Yahweh. So, again, what do we make of this? Well, in Job 5, verse 7, the surety of trouble in life is equated with the certainty of sparks from an open flame. Uh, literally, it says the sons of flame there. Uh, the sons of the flame would be the sparks from that fire. So uh, that's the surety of trouble in life. In Psalm 76 and verse 3, one of the weapons of war that Yahweh makes to cease in his temple are flashing arrows, which... Uh, that's not that's not on your left turn signal when it starts flashing in some places, right? Um, this is could be a reference to the speed of an arrow. It's kind of like lightning, or it could be the practice of igniting arrows before they are fired, uh, which happens in war. Psalm 78, verse 48, the plague of hail which hit Egypt is recounted as it is described in Exodus 9 and verse 23. It is commingled, the hail is, with thunder and fire. What an impressive storm that must have been in Exodus 9 and verse 23. And then Song of Songs 8 verse 6 describes the permanency of love in that it flashes with Yahweh's fire, Yahweh's flame. Um, So uh, that's the biblical usage of Reshef. Now, when you expand this and go outside of uh, the scriptures, Reshef was an Egyptian deity via Syria who was a god of war and a god of healing. And so you do have the war motif, but also the disease motif, right? Uh, And so, therefore, biblical reference to the deity would be by illusion. Uh, Illusion. It's it's an indirect reference uh, from my perspective. So if you assume that Reshef is behind these texts, which we have looked at, then yeah, you do have this demon of disease, more likely to make you sick than to heal you. Plague, right? And also you have this, uh, what, a burning demon, because you have the fire motif there. But he's also associated with war, in particular these arrows that are launched, and yet Yahweh causes them to cease. So um, again, assuming Reshef is behind those, that seems to be uh, again, these allusions, these indirect references to Reshef. Uh, so that's a bit about what I found. Alex, what did you find about Reshef? You know, you uh, mentioned Reshef and then, the, you know, the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, the more and more I look into Reshef, uh, it seems like the difference to me is that Reshef might actually be real. So here's what I found. Reshef is well attested in the ancient Near East. He is uh, not just known in Egypt, but uh, all over the ancient Near East. And he is attested as an underworld deity, underworld deity, uh, one of the gods of of the dead. And though his name often gets translated, as you pointed out in many verses, as fire, lightning, plague, these translations are not based off of the etymology of the word Reshef. Those descriptions are actually based off of what we know about the deity himself. The god Reshef has these qualities about him, fire, lightning, plague, and 
that's where the translators <laughs> came in and said, well, let's translate it fire, lightning, plague. It's not based off of the Hebrew word reshef itself, though. It's not based off of etymology. It's based off of what we know about the deity reshef in the ancient Near East. He is proclaimed as the Lord of battles and diseases. Reshef, he spreads his plague through bow and arrow. Uh, there's a Phoenician text that lists one of the epithets, one of the titles for Reshef as Reshef of the birds. And that may actually explain why the Septuagint translates Deuteronomy 32.24 as, um, as, as birds. As, what, what, what is it in, in Deuteronomy? Eating of birds is how it's translated. So I, I think what the idea is that Reshef's imagery seems to be that of the unseen hand on the battlefield, shooting fiery arrows of disease upon his victims. And the arrow-stricken prey are then filled with a burning fever, leaving their dead corpses as food for the birds. So that's that's Reshef. Pictured uh, in an ancient Egyptian stella, Reshef, he is standing as a warrior who also wears a white crown a white crown so in my opinion uh reshef i think he actually matches the description of the first horseman in revelation chapter 6 verse 2 you might notice that that horseman he wears a white crown he uses a bow he conquers with his arrows on the battlefield in the greco-roman world uh, reshef might be better known as apollo and here's the thing the main reason that I think we should see Reshef in the Hebrew text, the biblical text, as an actual reference to an ancient Near Eastern deity is because um, he appears in many passages with other ancient Near Eastern deities, right? It's not appearing like one-off things where it's just Reshef and there's nothing else in the text that would make you think this is a deity. So I don't think we should be translating it away as fire or lightning or something like that. For example... Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 24, as we both mentioned, that includes Reshef in the Hebrew, but it also includes Ketev. And Ketev is another well-attested deity in the ancient Near East, another underworld deity, even at that. So you have Reshef and Ketev together then in Deuteronomy 32, two ancient Near Eastern deities. Reshef also appears together with someone named Dever. And Dever is, guess what? Another well-attested ancient Near Eastern deity. And that's in Habakkuk 3.5. We mentioned Habakkuk 3.5 in that passage, how Reshef is translated as plague. Well, Dever translated as pestilence. So plague and pestilence, Reshef and Dever, uh, those are two well-known ancient Near Eastern deities. And I've mentioned, you know, Reshef, he appears in this verse with Ketev and that verse with Dever. But guess what? Ketev and Dever, they appear together in some texts as well. For example, Hosea 13, verse 14 mentions Ketev and Dever, but it's translated in our English as sting and thorns. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, uh, uh, Sheol, where is your? where are your thorns? And so Ketev, Dever, those are together there in Hosea 13, 14. Also, Psalm 91, this is an important one. Psalm 91, verse 6, mentions Ketev and Dever together, translates it as pestilence and destruction, but they are pictured in that text as being a night demon and a day demon. And 
you know, actually Reshef, you know, his imagery is that of an archer. He shoots his arrows. Well, the arrows are described as something to be protected against in Psalm 91. That's in verse 5. And so you may have an allusion to Reshef in Psalm 91.5, and then you have straight up mentioned in verse 6, Ketev and Dever. So that puts Reshef, Ketev, and Dever all in one passage. By the way, Psalm 91 is a well-known psalm for spiritual protection from evil spirits. Verse 11, he will guard you with his angels. So angels are the ones guarding us from these evil spirits. Here's, here's the thing that really got me on the, uh, on the trail to, to fish this out here. In Psalm 78, verses 48 through 50, Reshef, he appears with Dever, but this psalm specifically, it's interesting, it's telling. It describes the plagues that came upon Egypt during the Exodus. And in that description, verse 49, it calls these plagues a band of destroying angels. Did you hear that, folks? That's right. God uses bands, groups of evil, destroying, avenging angels when bringing about judgment on a nation. And that fits well within Second Temple literature where the Jews and other cultures believed that the natural elements, lightning, fire, wind, uh, that hail, that these powers were under the control of supernatural beings. And so a nation comes under judgment. God sends those beings to go execute his wrath. And that's why you look at the Exodus and you see plague after plague after plague after plague. But those plagues are not Mother Nature. Those plagues are destroying angels. And that will have to be continued for future featured Creatures. That's our featured creature, Reshef. <laughs> so there we go. Actually, I wrote a paper on on these uh, destroying angels. Got four of them in mind. I want to talk about. So we'll see what happens in next few episodes. Any final thoughts, Nick? I think that's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. First Peter one next time. That's right. Um, well, what can you tell our listeners about the podcast? Yeah, if you uh, go into the Apple Podcast Store, search Swordplay, uh, you will find our catalog of episodes there. If you haven't already done so, subscribe, download the episodes to your particular device. You can take them with you on the go. Uh, Google Play Music Store is also available right now, but that will be transitioning in the near future to YouTube Music, I believe. So stand by for more on that. If folks have a question, Alex, can they send it in somewhere? That's right. Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Any comments or questions, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Also, uh, if you feel up to it, we would appreciate some sort of written review on iTunes. What that does is when you go in to rate the podcast, you can give it, you know, one to five stars. If you, in addition, write a review about what you like about the podcast, that would help spread the podcast to many, many more people. It'll help it become more available. 
So if you have the time to do that, we would appreciate it. And we will see you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.